0: Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 31. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 209 or in the larger print Bibles, 321. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Last time in chapter 30, at the close of that chapter, we heard Moses tell the Israelites the Lord is your life, meaning he's your security in life. He's the giver of life in the first place. And so the only wise way to live is to make him the center of your life. And now in chapter 31, Moses is going to press home that point. And there's a particular reason why Moses wants to press this home. We'll see it right away as we begin to read this chapter. So let's read from verse 1 down to verse 30, the end of the chapter. Then Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel I am now 120 years old, and I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, You shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord said. And the Lord will do to them what he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, whom he destroyed along with their land. The Lord will deliver them to you, and you must do to them all that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them, and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. So Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the Levitical priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years in the year for cancelling debts, During the festival of tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and children, and the foreigners residing in your towns, so that they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Their children who do not know this law must hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. The Lord said to Moses, now the day of your death is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting where I will commission him. So Moses and Joshua came and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. Then the Lord appeared at the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, you are going to rest with your ancestors. And these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. And in that day, I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and calamities will come on them. And in that day, they will ask, have not these disasters come on us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face in that day because of all their wickedness in turning to other gods. Now, write down this song and teach it to the Israelites and make them sing it so that it may be a witness for me against them. When I brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised on oath to their ancestors, and when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. And when many disasters and calamities come on them, this song will testify against them because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. I know what they are disposed to do. Even before I bring them into the land, I promised them on oath. So Moses wrote down this song that day and taught it to the Israelites. The Lord gave this command to Joshua, son of Nun. Be strong and courageous, for you will bring the Israelites into the land I promised on oath. And I myself will be with you. After Moses finished writing in the book the words of this law from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. If you have been rebellious against the Lord while I am still alive and with you, how much more will you rebel after I die? Assemble before me all the elders of your tribes and all your officials so that I can speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and the earth to testify against them. For I know that after my death you are sure to become corrupt and to turn from the way I have commanded you. In days to come disaster will fall on you because you do evil in the sight of the Lord and arouse his anger by what your hands have made. And Moses recited the words of this song from beginning to end in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel. This is God's word and it is not a message that originates with Moses. Moses is God's messenger to these people. The message originates with God himself but at the same time as Moses delivers God's message. It has an added poignancy, an added intensity. It has an extra spice to it. And that is because Moses knows he has very little time left with these people. In fact, he knows he has only hours left. Within hours, he's going to die. And it's not because he's sick. Yes, he is old. In verse 2, he mentions that he's 120 years old, which is at the outer limits of what anyone could expect at that time. But the reason Moses knows he's about to die is not just because he's old, it's because the Israelites are about to cross the Jordan River into Canaan. And for the last 40 years, Moses has known he would lead the people to the very edge of Canaan, But he would not take the final step with them. He would die before they crossed the river. Very few people ever have details of their future revealed to them in advance. That information belongs to the secret things that are known only to God. But on this occasion, God revealed it to Moses. And knowing how things were going to end for him... Moses led the people still for 40 years. At the end of those 40 years, he preached the sermons that make up most of this book, preparing the Israelites for their life in Canaan. And now his sermons to the people are over. It's time for them to cross the river. And so Moses knows that his time is just about up. And in chapters 31 to 33, he does the final things he needs to do. In chapters 31 and 32, he gives the people their new leader, officially. He hands over the book that he's written, and he teaches the people a song. Then in chapter 33, he pronounces a blessing, and in chapter 34, he dies. And in all of this, Moses wants to impress on the people that the Lord is their life. Moses is not interested in setting up some kind of memorial to himself. That is not the legacy Moses is after. He wants to end his life as he has lived it, pointing to the one who deserves their attention. We can see that in verses 1 to 8. Now, at one level, these verses describe a public handover from Moses to the new leader, Joshua. Joshua. But over and above that, these verses remind God's people that the Lord's presence is the source of our confidence. We can probably assume Moses speaks to the people from some sort of raised platform so that he's visible and they can more easily hear him. When verse 1 says he went out and spoke to the people, we can picture him stepping to the front of the platform. At this point, Joshua is still offstage, He's waiting in the wings until he is called onto the platform as well. But before he introduces Joshua, Moses wants the people to know Joshua is not the answer to your need. Don't think that all will be well because you've got Joshua. Don't put your confidence in the fact that from today you will have a younger, more energetic leader that would be missing the point. That would be to misplace your confidence. Put your confidence not in your human leader, but in the Lord's presence. Look at that in verses three to six. The Lord your Lord, your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord said. And the Lord will do to them what he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, whom he destroyed along with their land. The Lord will deliver them to you, and you must do to them all that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Joshua is very clearly secondary in this whole thing. He's mentioned like an afterthought in verse 3. Oh, and Joshua will be there too. But the reason they're to be strong and courageous instead of afraid or terrified is because the Lord is with them. And in fact, when Joshua himself is then invited onto the stage in verse 7, he is given exactly the same message as everyone else. Be strong and courageous, Joshua, because the Lord will be with you. I don't know how impressive Joshua looked. He is a very experienced warrior by this point. Maybe he has the muscles and the scars to inspire confidence in the people. But the clear message is the people are not to put their confidence in him. And he is not to put his confidence in himself. In fact, the name Joshua means the Lord saves put your confidence in his presence and power. And this is an equally important point for us, isn't it? Because it's easy for us to think, if only we had more Christians in parliament. Maybe we're thinking about that during the week with the discussion of the euthanasia or the assisted suicide bill. Maybe we think if we just could get more Christians into the House of Lords, into the Commons, if we had more high-profile Christian celebrities, if we had more gifted Christian leaders with more charismatic and compelling personalities, then we'd be in a much better place. In this country, we have had some very gifted Christian leaders in the last century. And because of their giftedness, some people at that time got mixed up in where they should be putting their confidence. I heard an interview with the daughter of one of those excellent church leaders. And in that interview, she said that after her father died, some people stopped going to church. And they stopped going to church, she said, because they felt that their rock had gone. What a terrible, terrible mistake to make. As much as we thank God for that particular great leader and for other great leaders like Joshua and like Moses. As much as we thank God for them, none of them were ever intended to be the rock for God's people. They were not supposed to be the source of our confidence. Our confidence comes from the fact that the Lord is with us. And even the best leaders are to put their confidence not in their own ability, but in the Lord. As God's people, it's very tempting to hitch our confidence to other things. Not only leaders, but maybe rising numbers, maybe some positive decision from the government that seems to help us. And on the other hand, it's very easy to feel our confidence draining away when government and the wider society go against us, or when leaders feel us, or friends turn away we see godlessness and false religion growing. And I know we wouldn't be human if those things didn't bother us. But as God's people, our confidence mustn't rise and fall with those things. Our confidence rests on the Lord Almighty. The one who says to his people, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I go with you. I will fight for you. And since God spoke these words through Moses, he has given even more reason for us to put our confidence in him. God himself came among us in the person of his son, Jesus. God with us. And when the risen Jesus returned to his father, he sent his Holy Spirit to go with us and never leave us. So, As much as we can benefit from our leaders, as much as we can learn from them and grow to respect them, hopefully, let us never allow our confidence to rest in them. Let's keep it resting on the Lord himself. He is the only one who will never fail us. Of course, the reason we're tempted to let our confidence drift from the Lord and unto other things is because we can't see the Lord. It's easier to trust in the leader you can see than the Lord you can't see. It's easier to trust in the crowd you can see than in the Lord you can't see. So if our confidence is to rest in the Lord, we need to encounter him. We need to meet him regularly. How do we do that? Well, we might imagine it comes through some sort of mystical experience. And that is how many people seek to encounter God. So dim the lights, get the right relaxing ambience, Or alternatively, get out among the trees, sit by the side of a beautiful lake, and maybe you will encounter God. There are lots of good reasons to create a relaxing atmosphere. There are many good reasons to spend time outside. Enjoying a beautiful environment can be wonderfully refreshing for us. But by itself, none of those things will lead to an encounter with God. Verses 9 to 13 explain how it will happen. Verse 9 says Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the Levitical priests. So this law, or maybe better, this instruction, is the contents of Deuteronomy. Perhaps also the previous four books of the Old Testament, Genesis to Numbers. And we're not to suppose that Moses scribbled it all down on the same day that he gave it to the priests. No doubt he's been working on this for some time. And nor are we supposed to think, of course, that he wrote the bits at the end about his own death. This book, or this scroll, contains chapters 1 to 30 of Deuteronomy. Moses gives it to the priests, and then look what he tells them to do in verse 10. Moses commanded them, At the end of every seven years, in the year for cancelling debts, during the festival of tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and children, and the foreigners residing in your towns, so that they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. Their children who do not know this law must hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land you're crossing the Jordan to possess. Now, in one sense, this seems pretty unremarkable. We already know from earlier in Deuteronomy that the people are to learn the contents of this book. They are to take it to heart. Several times, parents have been told to teach these words to their children and to talk about them regularly. And so we might think this is just an additional measure to make sure that people remember God's word. And if children have parents who don't teach them for whatever reason, they will still get to hear it as it's read publicly. And that is certainly part of what's going on here. But look again at verse 11. It's the key verse where Moses says, When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. The place the Lord will choose is the temple that would eventually be built in the land. All Israel will gather there to appear before the Lord, to meet the Lord. In fact, a good argument could be made for translating that when all Israel comes to see the face of the Lord. The people have not gathered to meet their friends That might be a nice side effect of the gathering of the temple. But the reason they have come is to meet God. What's interesting, though, is that they cannot actually see him. Not with their eyes. They can't get inside the temple. And even if they did, there would be no God in there to see with their eyes. He's a spirit, and he has forbidden any image of himself to be set up. So how are the people to meet the Lord? How are they to see his face? That's what they have gathered to do. How does it happen? They meet him. They see his face as they listen to his written word being read. That's what verse 11 is telling us. We encounter the Lord as we listen to his written word. On Sunday evening, Steve is taking us through the book of Nehemiah. And when we get to Nehemiah chapter 8, we will see this instruction in verse 11 actually being carried out. It was led by Ezra, the teacher of the law. It spread over multiple days. The first session lasted from daybreak till noon which makes us look like part-timers in this church. And it included explanation to make sure the people understood what was being read to. And of course, what happened here when all Israel gathered was replicated at other times all across the country as the Levites spread among the tribes, read to smaller groups of people and explained what was read. And what's interesting in the description we get of this in Nehemiah 8 is that the people's reactions show they know they're meeting God. And they respond to that meeting with worship, with joy, and later with deep repentance. I can remember seeing some Bible reading notes that were called Encounters with God. I don't know how helpful those notes were, I only looked at the cover, but the title was exactly right. "To listen carefully to the Bible is to encounter God." And that truth massively ramps up the significance of what we do here on Sundays. It ramps up the significance of what's happening time we open our Bible and start to read wherever we are when we do that we are not just listening to words or reading words we are encountering the living Lord God we are hearing him speak and while we cannot see him with our eyes we are seeing him in the sense that we're seeing his character we are seeing his goodness his love and faithfulness, and his hatred of evil. We are being confronted by God. Sometimes he confronts us with assurance and comfort, sometimes with rebuke and correction. But always when we read scripture, God himself is in our face. We are encountering him. Now that doesn't mean every part of scripture is easy to read in the sense of being immediately clear and yes some of us find any kind of reading to be a significant challenge. We're not claiming here that reading scripture is easy, we're saying that as hard and challenging as it can be for all of us, it has immeasurable significance and value. Because as we read, and I don't mean as we skim while planning our shopping for the week, I mean as we give ourselves to the often slow, hard work of reading carefully, giving the Bible our full attention. As we do that, we see the face of the king of the universe. We meet our loving heavenly father. And his son Jesus Christ. One day the Bible will not be needed anymore. We will be with our Lord, experiencing his presence fully. But until that day, we experience his presence truly, not fully, but truly, as we listen to his written word. It's that significant. So here's the progression of our passage. Verses 1 to 8 told us our confidence must be in the Lord. And our confidence in the Lord will only grow through encountering him. As we listen to his written word, both the reading and the explanation of his word. Before we leave, verses 9 to 13, notice how this applies to children equally. Verse 12 says, they are to be part of those who meet God by listening to his word. So let's never shortchange our children by giving them the impression the Bible is beyond them. Let's encourage them with the truth that they too can meet God through his written word. But at this point, some of you might be feeling frustrated. You might agree that we encounter God through the Bible, but you may be thinking you're missing something else that's very significant music and song surely that is also a tried and tested route to meet God well let's look on in our passage because the last section of Deuteronomy 31 is about a song next week we'll look at the song itself in chapter 32 but here we're given the background to it and at first it seems a bit confusing In verse 14, the Lord summons both Moses and Joshua to the tent of meeting. What is that? Well, we might be familiar with the tabernacle tent that stood at the center of the Israelite camp. The tent of meeting was a different structure that was outside the camp. It was a place where God had communicated with Moses during the travels of the last 40 years. And because Joshua had been Moses' assistant, He was familiar with the tent of meeting as well. And here, after the public commissioning of Joshua back in verses 7 and 8, now God calls the two men to the tent of meeting to commission Joshua privately. But what actually happens is, when the Lord appears in a pillar of cloud in verse 15, he speaks at length, not about Joshua, but about the fact that the Israelites are soon going to turn their back on the Lord. He says in verse 16, they will prostitute themselves to foreign gods of the land they're entering. And as a consequence of forsaking the Lord, they will experience the discipline of the Lord. That will come in the form of many disasters and calamities. We heard about those in detail back in chapter 28. Painful detail. And verse 17 says, in the turmoil that they will experience, the people will ask, or in fact, they will say, have not these disasters come on us because our God is not with us? It's more of an accusation than a question, really. The Lord has let us down. He's done a runner on us. That will be their reaction to what happens. And yes, it will be true that the Lord has hid his face from them, meaning he has withdrawn his favor. But the point they are missing is why that has happened. It's happened because they have forsaken him. The Lord covenanted to be a husband to his people, and he has been unfailingly faithful they have prostituted themselves to other lovers. False gods who can be neither faithful nor unfaithful because they're completely lifeless. That's the cause of Israel's pain. It's because of their own waywardness and sin. And having described what will happen and how Israel will miss the point of what happens, now God says in verse 19 write down this song and teach it to the Israelites and make them sing it so that it may be a witness for me against them. How have we moved suddenly from the news that the Israelites are going to prostitute themselves to this command to teach them a song? Is this a break for a bit of something completely different? A bit of light relief in the midst of the bad news about the future? have a song to lighten the mood for a moment is that what it's about well let's ask a different question what is it that is significant about songs what do songs do in probably a greater way than anything else they engage our emotions they reach us in a way that almost nothing else can. And words alone can affect us emotionally, of course, but words and music together do that in spades. Isn't that true? A song can lift us right up, or it can bring us right down. Songs can make us smile. And feel like our heart is going to burst with joy and exuberance. And songs can make us weep and feel an awful ache in our heart. So then let's ask again, why does God tell Moses to teach the people a song? He does it because in the days to come, he wants the people's emotions to be led by the truth they are going to experience disasters and calamities and they are going to get emotional about that we saw that in verse 17 with their accusation the lord has let us down and in preparation for those future days and those wayward emotions that they're going to have now in advance the lord gives this song which we'll see next week is full of the truth about God and truth about the people. He gives this song so that when those hard times hit, the people's emotions will be led by the truth. It's pointless telling human beings not to get emotional. We are emotional beings. God made us that way. But the message is, Our emotions are not to be allowed to run where they will. They're to be led in a way that's helpful. Our emotional response to the Lord must be led by the truth. It's a given that we will experience emotions. All sorts of them. We can't plug them up, not for very long anyway. But what we must do is take steps to lead our emotions with the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. So when in the future Israel hits hard times, this song they're about to learn will be with them. And we all know how songs do stay with us. And when they want to lash out against God, when they find themselves wanting to blame God, this song will lead their emotions down a more truthful route a route that acknowledges god's goodness and their own sin so if we come back to our question from earlier and ask is music a way to encounter god the answer has to be it depends Music will stir up our emotions for sure but that can lead us away from God just as easily as it can lead us to him. Key issue is are we singing the truth? Notice here in verse 22 we're told that Moses taught the song to the Israelites but there's no indication about the style of music that went along with the words. Maybe if we listen to some Middle Eastern music, we might get a rough idea of what the music might have been like. But the sense we get is that the style of the music is entirely secondary. It's almost irrelevant. Certainly, I think it's significant that God has made no effort to preserve musical notation in scripture. There are lots of songs in scripture, but no music. That seems to indicate he is not very concerned with style. What he is concerned about are the words of what we sing. Are they true? Will they lead our emotions in a truthful way or not? And God is concerned that we sing all aspects of the truth the joyful truth, and the painful truth. He is our life, the Bible says, and that must include our emotional life. We must honor him as Lord of our emotions. And we do that by making sure that we sing the truth about him and about ourselves. And as our passage ends, verses 23 to 30, summarize what we've already heard in the first part of the passage. They underline these three encouragements that God's people always need to hear. So as we close, let's just take a moment personally to consider. Let's consider, has our confidence shifted from where it needs to be? Recently? Do we need to place our confidence once again in the Lord who is our life? Now, let's ask ourselves personally do we need to reevaluate our attitude to God's Word? Do we need to come to it with a new expectancy? That we will meet the Lord as we pay attention to his word. Have we lost that expectancy when we open scripture? And finally, let's ask ourselves, are we making sure our emotions are led by the truth? Not just running unchecked, but being disciplined with the truth. Take a moment just to be quiet. Maybe one or more of those questions will apply particularly to you. Ask God to show you how it might apply to you. Let's just take take the time before we respond together with song. think that our last two songs do stir our emotions and lead our emotions with the truth of God's word specifically the truth about his work in Jesus Christ so let's respond to him as we sing king forevermore and then we're not alone
1: and you.
0: just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Amen.